Hello, I am Charles Musgrove, host of the Answers That Count podcast. Thank you for joining us. And we have another great show today. We're going to get another economic update, just like we do on a pretty regular basis with our good friend and professional, Professor Joe Calhoun with FSU. Hey, before we get started, do me a favor. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the like button. And leave us a comment, too. So uh, it's always good to hear from our audience. So leave us a comment, and we'll uh, we'll get you a reply on that, too. So uh, thank you for watching the show today. And, Joe, you know that uh, economics is always, it's always a part of our everyday life. And it's so great to be able to include you on the show and get your perspective of what we're seeing in the headlines, what we're seeing at the markets when we go to buy stuff. You know, how does it relate to the, to the foundation of economics, the fundamentals of economics. It's always good to get your perspective on that. Well, thanks for inviting me back. I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, a friend of mine wrote a book called Economics is Everywhere, and it's a great title because economics truly is everywhere. People do economics every single day. And the more we understand and the better we can apply some principles the better decisions we're going to make. So I, I love speaking to your audience and hopefully they're all going to make a little better decision afterwards. Yeah, I agree. And you know, one of the things that has really stuck with me and I know it was always, you always knew about this, but to hear the technical uh, definition of this and how it applies in economics. And then you start to, it really starts to open your eyes and see it in, in real life. And that is incentives matter. I know that goes back to one of your key foundations in economics, but man, is that, is it? Yeah, that is, that is the, one of the cornerstones. Um, incentives matter. Scarcity and opportunity costs are, is another big one, but, you know, incentives matter. That, that, you know, is, is both economic. It's also psychological, you know, psychologists use that all the time. Uh, you use it with, with animals. You know, if you're going to train a dog how to do something, it's all about the incentive. So it's more yeah. than just humans making decisions. It's also animals and, and plants doing their thing. So it is literally everywhere. Yeah, it's it's so true. And we see that today, and we've talked about this several times. So, you know, the incentives of money drives people's decisions and their behavior. And we've seen that. We've talked about that on our show numerous times where, the federal government over the past year, they've had incentives in place for people basically to stay home and not work. There's as much, they get paid as much or close to as much by not working as they do for going back to work. So the unintended consequence, another famous uh, economics statement is what you get with that is people that there are jobs available now, but they're not incentivized to go back to work. So they're staying home and collecting that unemployment check instead. Yeah. Yeah. And all that's coming to an end in many states. It already has ended, including our state of Florida, where our governor said, okay, we're going to end those extra unemployment benefits, not the base ones. That, that's always going to be there. Right. The extra ones that the federal government put in place are set to expire in September in Florida and a bunch of others. It's not just our governor, a bunch of other governors, uh, have said, you know what, we, we've got a problem filling jobs. And part of, not the only reason, but part of the reason why we can't fill those jobs is because these extra unemployment benefits. So our governor and many others ended that early, some uh, uh, earlier this month, some even uh, in June. Uh, and then we've got a few more, I think, coming on board in August. But 
you know, for I think across the country, more and more states are moving away from that September expiration and moving it up a little bit. Because I don't know what it's like over in the 30A, but here in, in Tallahassee, you drive up and down the road and everybody, it seems like, is trying to hire. It's not just restaurants. I mean, this I saw a sign at the dry cleaning store this, this the morning on my way into work. So, you know, it, it's just all different kinds of positions that are needed to be filled. Now, the good news is, uh, you know, we, we still have unemployment that's a little high. The national unemployment rate is 5.9% coming down, thankfully. In Florida, we're doing a little bit better than that. We're down to 5%. So, you know, a lot of those people are out looking for jobs, but not enough. Uh, we need more people working because we've got a lot of positions that are unfilled right now. So true. And you see that. You know, I talk to people across the U.S., and, and they're all having that issue right now. Everyone is clamoring for employees. So there's there's a big help-wanted sign out in front of a lot of, a lot of retail and, and other establishments right now. So let's take a look at some of the headlines. You know, uh, J.P., Jerome Powell, when Jerome Powell speaks, the world listens. And uh, he has these regularly scheduled meetings where he talks about the, the Fed rate and what's going on in the market. So... He had a meeting this past week. Uh, I think it was Wednesday, the 14th of this week. So, uh, you know, we've, we've discussed his his uh, mentions or references before about inflation, and, and he's not one that, that should ever come out and say, we've got inflation, that, that we've got to calm this down because that's going to create panics and panic in the markets, not just in in our markets, but across the world. So, you really have to read between the lines, and I'm going to look to you to to interpret some of the stuff that that uh, Jerome Powell said in his last meeting. So let's let's go to that next article too. And here's it's kind of nuanced in how he's what he's talking about inflation. But give us give us your impression of this, or interpret interpret the great JP speak for us. Well, that's a tall order, so uh, I don't know if I can go quite that far, but uh, let me uh, just reiterate a couple of statements that you just made, just so our listeners are, are very clear. Uh, Chairman Powell has to be incredibly careful with his words because the U.S. financial markets and financial markets around the world literally hang on every small word, and if he had a, a slip or if he said something, it would really cause chaos in a short amount of time. So he has to be incredibly careful with his word selection. And he's got to keep things very close to the vest. You know, he can't be completely transparent. So this is where people really dig into the words and, and really try to wordsmith and read between the lines, as, as you suggest. So, um, you know, I, I have to be careful also because, you know, it's, it's very dangerous to interpret what somebody else says. We have, we have the quote in front of us. And everybody can go read it. Now, you know, it's very difficult to, to try to, to say, all right, well, this is what he really meant. But here, here's what I believe is going on uh, at the Fed it is I know they're watching this very carefully and they are truly concerned about inflation. Remember, their target inflation is 2%. And when they come in way over target, they look bad. And then uh, Chairman Powell has a lot of questions to answer in terms of, okay, why were you so far off the mark? Also, I mean, he's smart enough to know that inflation is a really bad deal for the U.S. economy. We, we finally slayed the dragon of inflation in the early 1980s, and we've been able to keep it dead since then. We don't want that coming back. That, that's really bad news for the economy. So I think what he's really trying to say, if we can paraphrase a little bit, is that 
Yeah, it's a concern. We got our fingers crossed, and I, I believe he really does think that this is temporary. It's moderate, and it will kind of correct itself in terms of the supply chain issues that we've been seeing, and we can get into more of that in a minute. But also what's going on is the Fed stands ready to act when needed. They just don't feel they're quite ready to act yet. But I know that they've got their finger ready, very close to the button where they need to start pulling back a little bit. Now, the big question is, when is that going to happen? And in the article, he was asked very specifically, okay, when and what are you exactly going to do? And he really uh, walked away from that question. And I think rightfully so, because you don't want to say something that you're going to do, because then when the time comes, it it could be appropriate to do something a little bit different. So you don't want to lock yourself into something right now. So I thought his response there was actually very smart. You don't want to tell somebody exactly what you're going to do three months from now, because as we've seen the last year and a half, a lot of the world can change in three months and it can change in a way that we never expected. Right. So I think bottom line is they're ready to act when they think it's appropriate. They just don't think it's appropriate yet. Yeah. John, let's go full screen with Joe right now. Joe, I I want to ask you, uh, this is back to the, the bullets that are in the 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 belt or the gun for Chairman Powell to do. So I guess the easy thing for for me to understand is one of the one of the tools that's available for him would be let's raise the rate, let's raise the Fed rate. So is that is, is that true? Is that really one of the yeah? Most- that is the number one. So so the Fed technically has three tools in its tool belt. The one that always, always, doesn't matter whether we're in a pandemic or the Great Recession or whatever the case is, the number one tool has always been the interest rate. Now, what people need to understand is the Fed changes that interest rate indirectly. So let me give you a counterexample. Let's suppose that I was uh, some bank, we'll just call it the Bank of Joe, and I've got my bank in Tallahassee, Florida, and I've got a branch office over in the, the Panhandle. And I just say, you know what, I'm going to raise my interest rate that I'm paying on savings account. I just go and I change the sign and I change the computer program. So instead of paying you 1% interest, I pay you 2% or whatever number I think. I just go change the sign and I can do that. I've got full authority. Well, when the Fed talks about changing the interest rate, they're talking about changing the federal funds interest rate. And they don't get to just simply change the sign. That's a market. It's got a supply curve and a demand curve. And what they do is they set a target for what they want the interest rate to be, but they have to manipulate the supply curve such that it intersects with the demand curve at that target interest rate. So let's suppose, just for example, that they want that target interest rate to be 2%. Well, instead of just saying it's 2% now, they can't do that. They buy and sell government bonds to manipulate that supply curve so that they hit their target. Now, they're very good. If you were to go back and look at their historical data, when they say what they want their target to be, they almost always nail it right there. Hmm. So they're, they're incredibly good, but they do it through what we call bond purchases. So when they buy bonds, it increases, uh, excuse me, when they buy bonds, it decreases the interest rate. When they sell bonds, it increases the interest rate. So the people who really follow the Fed actually follow their bond purchases through the New York branch 
And that is the best indicator for what Fed policy really is. So what's the, um, I guess, a question that comes to mind. There's been a lot of debt that's been issued in the past couple of years. A lot of debt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Trillions. Trillions. I mean, we've done more. We've done multiple years in the span of, of 18 months. Yeah. Or less. So if the, and the rates, the Fed rate has been near zero for some period of time, right? I mean, they really can't go down much lower. So what happens, what's the effect if the rates, if, if Powell increases those rates? I mean, that, that just as a, as a normal consumer, if I've got uh, a debt outstanding and the interest rate is floating, I know that my monthly payment is lower if interest rates are near zero than they are if the interest rate is 5%. So how, yeah. how does that correlate to what we're talking about here from a consumer level to the macro level? Yeah. And this is where consumers need to pay attention to this. They don't need to be quite as nerdy as I do and and read all these details, but you need to pay attention to this. And it's pretty easy because it's in the popular press all over the place. Almost every interest rate in the economy starts from that federal funds rate. So when I teach macroeconomics, I talk about the interest rate as if there's one, but there's there's millions of interest rates in the economy. But almost all of them move in the same direction, and they move when the federal funds rate moves. So if the federal funds rate is going to go up, then the next time you apply for a car loan, you're going to pay a higher interest rate. Your credit card interest rate is going to go up. Now, if you're in a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, that obviously is not going to change for 30 years. But if you were to to take out a new mortgage or if you were to refinance, anything new or anything that's variable. So, for example, let's suppose that you took out a variable rate mortgage and that renewed with a new rate every year. Okay, for sure, that rate is going to go up. So when the federal funds rate, the one set by the Fed or targeted by the Fed, goes in a certain direction, almost every other interest rate moves in the same direction. So consumers have had this great benefit during the pandemic of low interest rates. Now, there's been a lot of other negative things, and I don't want to make it sound like, hey, you know, this has just been great because interest rates have been going down. But if, if you've been in the market to take out a loan to borrow money from anywhere from any purpose, whether it's credit card or, or a car, you have had a lower interest rate than we've seen in a long, long time. And that's the reason why the refinance uh, mortgage market has been so popular right. because interest rates went down dramatically and people said, all right, I can lock into an interest rate that's one or two or 3% lower than what I was paying before. Over the course of 30 years, that's a lot of money to save. It's a lot of money. So what happens, the federal government, they have a lot of debt. I mean, we see that right now. The U.S. debt is what, $30 trillion or more dollars right yeah. now. So-, yeah. so this is also good news for the federal government because what we refer to as servicing the debt. So when the government issues an IOU through the Treasury Department called a government bond, they need to pay an interest rate. Well, when they sell those bonds on the open market and interest rates are really low, that means the interest payment servicing the debt is not very expensive. But when interest rates rise and the government has to pay a higher interest rate on those IOUs, then servicing the debt becomes 
much more difficult. So right now, it's a great time to borrow if you're the federal government, just like it's yeah. a great time to borrow if you're trying to buy a home. And again, incentives matter, right? So incentives matter for the home buyer, incentives matter for the politician. So that's another reason why uh, politicians have found it much easier to borrow these last two years because interest rates have been incredibly low. Right. So what? Ha- so speaking of incentives and it's easy to say that if if rates are low, then there's some incentive there to make an investment, to borrow money and put that money to work. And the same same applies for the federal government. The federal government has had the benefit of these low rates as well. So the federal on the on the inverse side, the federal government or Chairman Powell is not incentivized to raise those rates because not only does it have a dramatic effect to the consumer, but it also does to the servicing of that federal debt. Yes. I mean, it's, it becomes more expensive for the American taxpayer because remember that debt is not free money. That's right. an IOU. That means it has to be paid back in the future. That means taxes are going to be higher in the future to pay back that $30 trillion. That's just not free money. I know politicians make it sound like it's free. It's not. It's a debt. Just like when you go into a personal debt or when you swipe your credit card, that's a debt. You need to pay it back. Right. The federal government is going to have to pay all that money back. So it's bad for the American taxpayer when interest rates go up because we're the ones who pay back those federal obligations that we call treasuries. Yeah. So right now, I guess there's and I'm sure you've seen it, too. There's. With the inflation, we see the the devaluation of the U.S. dollar, so it takes more dollars to buy the same thing. So um, if you had a crystal ball, what you would do is borrow money now at a fixed low rate and invest that that money in some, some scarce asset, and maybe, maybe you're putting it in something that's not even um, based on the U.S. dollar. I mean, it, it really creates a lot of, of hype around that and a lot of speculation, and it really— throws thing in it throws things in a lot of of what if scenarios you know a lot of a lot of uncertainty so uh it really goes back to the point you made first and that chairman powell every word he says he has to be very careful and very nuanced in what he says because he doesn't have the incentive to increase those rates because not only does it affect the consumer but the federal government and those changes can be dramatic for a just a a small increase in that Fed rate percentage. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, it just anyone can do this on their own. Just go grab a mortgage calculator and put in the numbers at, let's say, three and a half percent, and then rerun the monthly payment and the total interest you'll pay over the course of that 30 year loan if the interest rate rises to 3.75. Right. I mean, just the 0.25 difference will cost you literally thousands of dollars. So we're talking money that is going to be spent by people to go to service their debt, whether it's the personal debt or whether it's the federal debt. And when you combine all of that up to the national level, we're talking about a very large sum of money that is going to not be spent at the mall. It's going to be going back to repay debt obligations through the interest rate. Absolutely. Then you can just see the ripple effect of that. So if if the rate goes up, it costs more to service the debt. The, the 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 cost to run the government on an annual basis goes up. So then they look back to increase taxes. And then you have 
the ripple effect on incentives there. If if tax rates go up, then people aren't incentivized to 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 report or make as much money. So, is the is the amount of money coming into the federal government through taxes with an increased rate is it as high as what you expect? I mean, there's just a it's just the right. ripple effect on that is just is yeah, just it gets, exponential. It gets very complicated, very yeah, complicated very quickly with with those words of Chairman Powell. Yes, yes. That's why he has to be very, very careful. Exactly. Let's go to the next headline, John. Jobless claims fall to look pandemic lows. We don't have to spend a lot of time on that. I think that kind of reiterates what you said earlier. People are yeah, getting back Yeah, we got good news. You know, the, the trend is definitely what we want to see. Uh, you know, again, the national rate is 5.9. The Florida rate is 5. That was as of June. Uh, so we've got a couple more weeks, of course, here in July, and we'll get the, the July numbers in early August. And I fully expect those numbers to come down even more. Uh, and then to really, I think, accelerate downward in the, the later in the fall as some of these supply chain issues get resolved, as these extra unemployment benefits fully expire nationwide and more people come out of the pandemic and get back to work. So I, I think we've got great news ahead on the unemployment front. Agree. So let's go to the next. Here's, I think this is interesting and you know, as part of the the unemployment still being at, at five something percent, many jobs lost during pandemic won't come back. Go to the next slide, John. So, this is uh, this this makes reference to the Dave and Buster's chain, and it talks about some other hospitality companies. In that, they during the pandemic they took the opportunity to focus on technology to deliver some of their service. So. You know, it's not only replacing, I guess the ultimate effect is it's replacing employees with technology, but it's making those employees, the employees that are working more efficient at doing their job. Therefore, you have less need for those employees. Yes. So I find yes. that very interesting, uh, not only in the hospitality industry, but my my speculation is that, that we're going to see that in many industries. Yeah, and actually, uh, ironically enough, I was uh, just speaking to uh, FSU alumni who's uh, running a business down in Tampa, and they are moving into some new manufacturing, and they are doing a cost analysis, and they are finding it now cheaper to actually manufacture in the United States than they had previously been manufacturing in Southeast Asia and then having those products delivered over here. Well, the automation is saving them so much money that they're now able to move their manufacturing into the United States, but they don't have to go on a big hiring spree with more expensive U.S. workers because the automation is making that up. They can produce just as much with fewer employees because of the advance in technology. Now, at one point that I do want to make, because we typically only see this advance as a one-way street. And what I mean by that is this is bad news for the worker, that we have automation and we have fewer people. Well, that is only part of the story because you have to ask yourself, where does that technology come from? I mean, we kind of make it sound like the machine just shows up one day and says, hey, I'm here, ready to work, boss, and right. you can get rid of that human over there. Well, somebody had to engineer and design that machine. Somebody had to build it. There's a manufacturing process in there. Machines don't build themselves yet. Uh, you know, this is not the Terminator we 3. We don't have that AI yet. Uh, not, not yet. So somebody's got to design the machine. Somebody has to build the machine. You have to program. You have to install it. And then you have to maintain it. 
And then, of course, we're always looking for new and improved. Well, those are going to, those activities are going to create jobs for people to do. You have to hire somebody to design, hire somebody to install, hire someone to do service checks and maintenance and those kinds of things. So while, yes, overall, it will reduce uh, worker demand, but it's not going to be a one-to-one replacement because machines need to be created and maintained. Exactly. And that goes to the back to our one of our favorite sayings, incentives matter. So the incentives are over there in the creation of new technology. And you also have the other incentive is those businesses are incentivized to invest in the technology because the cost of the labor cost has increased. So you don't have such an advantage in using labor or people as you did maybe in the past when that cost was lower relative to the cost of investing in that technology. Right. Right. And, and we still see very nice productivity gains. And we measure that simply by output per hour worked. So uh, I forget the exact latest number, but it was a very encouraging number. U.S. productivity still continues to rise. That is month over month, we see positive numbers. And that's a great sign. The worker's best friend is capital, machines. Right. Uh, I mean, think back to 30 years ago when a carpenter went to work. You know, they didn't have the kind of tools. So what, what happens when you give a carpenter not just a, a hammer and a nail, but you give them an automatic nailer and you give them a miter saw and all the other great tools that they have today? They can just make more. Their productivity increases. So we, we don't need to fear. We need to embrace and truly celebrate these productivity-enhancing capital improvements. Yes, they're going to displace some people, but they're going to create new jobs for others, and they're going to make existing workers more productive. More productive workers get paid more. Yeah, makes total sense. And it's uh, in the accounting world, we always – I can think back to the time where we went from a single monitor that we worked on to double monitors and even – three or four monitors that that we worked off of. So it all is about having better technology to increase the efficiency of what we're doing. Yeah. So this is another uh, comment related to an incentive in that the incentives are in place with the tax code to invest in technology or to invest in the equipment because there's a tax incentive there. They The, the owner gets a, a tax break if they make that investment. So that's a that's a better investment from the tax perspective than if they invested in hiring people. Uh, well, it can be. Uh, again, if you're the entrepreneur, if you're the business owner, you say, I've, I've got $10 to spend. Where's the most productive return? Do I hire an employee? Sometimes that's the best place to put it. Other times I need to invest in technologies and some kind of capital formation. And this is where trade-offs come into play. So I've got $10. I can't do both. I can't have the machine and the person. I need to figure out where my biggest return is. Sometimes it's the person because you do need somebody to do a certain kind of job that a machine can't do. But other times you do need the machine, and right. this is where the business owner has to make that trade-off. Yep, exactly. Decisions have to be made. So, John, let's go to full screen, and uh, this is one more headline. We're not going to have time to go through that. But, Joe, this has been a, a great show today. Like all the shows that you do with us, you really bring some some really down-to-earth um, explanation of what, we, what we're reading in the headlines how to relate that to true economics. You know, you take the politics out of it, you take the hype out of it, and we really get to know 
the an understandable explanation of economics and what we see in the headlines and what we're experiencing as a consumer. Well, appreciate the kind words. Uh, I hope your listeners can learn a few things. I really enjoy being here. I'm, I'll come back anytime you ask. We're going to have you back. And thank you for watching the Answers That Count sh- podcast. I am your host, Charles Musgrove. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Leave us some comments there. And we'll see you next time on the Answers That Count podcast. Peace.